sex is the best. <laughs> and like, it is, it is the best. Growing up, I was like, sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. At least for me, I was so naive, um, even in dating, that I didn't realize that there were all these other things uh, between kissing and sex. There's the, the height and the passion and the romance yeah. and all of that can be a good part of it, but that really can't sustain over yeah. time. What sustains over time is just this, this friendship, this affection yeah. that we want to hang out together and we actually enjoy being around each other. We had a conversation on our third date actually um, about physical boundary. It is a little awkward because culture tells you like, if someone likes you romantically, they're gonna be more physical with you. So I even, as a non-physical touch person, had nights of insecurity of like, wait, you didn't kiss me. We waited a while to even have our first kiss and like had that very, I think some people think awkward conversation beforehand of like, you have permission to kiss me. And then he asked me like one night, like, do you want it to be tonight? And I was like, no. And to be secure enough to know like, this isn't a rejection of you because this actually, this is a part of our relationship we have to monitor in a healthy way um, because we're not sure if we're gonna end up together forever. And it is like an intimacy builder. Um, and it is something that can kind of corrupt our ability to be sober-minded um, as we're together and like get to know each other as like people and as friends and not just from this a more physical sense. I think you asked me to be your girlfriend mm. and I said yes and then you said can I kiss you and I said no. And I was pumped. <laughs> Honestly, I was pumped. Every every I felt like you holding those boundaries actually made it easier for me as well to be at peace about it and and not have there be anything weird or clouded about it just to be like oh okay okay great well we'll just keep hanging out then. yeah so to, to have conversations about values is really important so for example uh, why am I here what is the purpose of marriage if the purpose of marriage is self-fulfillment that's quite a different thing than mutual fulfillment and mutual sacrifice if the most important thing is that I feel fulfilled, I would want to expose that. Yeah, and I think when you're dating, those differences, like we said, don't come out as fast as they do yes. later on. But one way that you can allow the differences to come out is to not become sexually intimate. Because once you do, there's a, there's a strong bond that masks the differences. But if you want more information as to your differences and and how you operate in life, then I would say take it slowly um, when you're dating. If you are a virgin, celebrate that. Walk in your virginity. Don't let the world and all the messages that come in that say, no, just give that up. It's not worth it. You can have a lot of fun. Um, don't buy into that because Nate and I were, were lucky in that we did keep ourselves pure. We did. And when you do that, your sexual life together is so fun because the only person that ever enters your mind is your man. Right. But then let me just say, because it's so hard today to do that, many of you may have already crossed that line. I can't tell you how many women that I've known that will say, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm now married, but I have this past and I'm sleeping next to this, my husband, and for a minute, I don't know if it's my husband or someone else for a second. That's a reality that happens in our minds when we've had other partners. But God can be in that. Talk that through with your husband, cry out to God. He can remove that and over time, I believe he will bring complete healing to that. But purity is a, is a huge part 
of marriage and it builds trust. Our wedding night was special in as much as we had waited and it was worth it. And, yes. and, and, and I think I'm always careful to say for someone who hasn't waited or has yeah. that past, it doesn't mean you can't find that redemption, totally. but I just want to advocate for what we experienced was really special and was really wonderful. Yeah. There was nothing to compare it to. It was just us. Yeah. It was an intimate and beautiful moment and, and we really treasure that moment. Yeah. Um, I think a really healthy part of my relationship with God has been talking to God about sex, not just shutting thoughts or feelings down, like, yes, we're called to take every thought captive. And especially if we're in a relationship where we see someone and we begin to like lust after people or have thoughts that aren't honoring to God, like, yes, but also not becoming so discouraged to the point of like condemning our make. We are sexual um, beings and God actually made that to be really good and a really healthy um, part of like relationship with another person. So keep yourself pure and, and make that commitment to a second virginity if that's what you need to do. But but walk that out because God has such an amazing plan for, for our lives and for our marriages in the area of sexual fulfillment. And it's it's a blast, but it's, it's, it's freedom. Um, True freedom, yeah, yeah, comes from following God's plan. Yeah. All right, good evening, everyone. If you've got a Bible with you, I want to invite you to grab that Bible right now. We'll be in Galatians chapter 5. I want to welcome those of you watching on our online stream as well. We're glad you're with us this evening. Galatians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. And in case you did not figure it out from that video, tonight we are talking about the subject of sex. That is what we were talking about. That's what we're going to get into. As my lovely wife kicked off the whole video saying, sex is the best. And she's right. It's awesome. It's wonderful. It is a good thing. Here at this church, we are going to celebrate the good gift of sex that God gave us. But we're going to talk about it in context tonight and talk about it in a way that hopefully you'll see the biblical vision, not only for what it is, uh, but also for how we might deal with it, given the fact that this room is overwhelmingly not married. Um, and so we're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to jump into the subject tonight. Uh, and I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit would do a good work in your life tonight as we look at Galatians chapter 5. But before we get to Galatians 5, I want to open up the, the conversation about sex um, by talking about something when it comes to the Christian or biblical view on sex that's actually been in the news lately. It's been talked about a lot. You've probably seen the term, heard the term. Recently, there's been a ton of conversation around these two words, the words purity culture. Purity culture. I want to talk to you about that tonight. If you don't have any idea what purity culture is, I'll try to define it in a moment. Some of you understand what purity culture is or have your impressions of it. I want to be clear that that for a lot of people, purity culture just means any sexual ethic that's more narrow or conservative than theirs. And that's not what purity culture means. Purity culture is actually defined by a moment in time, a set of practices and beliefs and tools. Let me put it this way. The Gospel Coalition defines it this way. It says, purity culture is the term that is often used for the evangelical movement that attempts to promote a biblical view of purity by discouraging dating and promoting virginity before marriage, often through the use of tools such as purity pledges, symbols, and purity rings, and events such as purity balls. So again, purity culture, what what I'm opening up talking about tonight is not just anything that someone says about sexual immorality or sexual morality. It is not someone promoting the biblical view of sex and what the right context is for sex. Purity culture was a very specific set of tools that really started emerging in like the 1990s. And so some of you, who here was born in the 90s? Anyone? 
okay? So, so you were kind of born into this kind of culture where there was a set of tools. And so it references a few. It talks about kind of not dating, purity pledges. Maybe you made one of those growing up where you said, I'm going to wait until I'm a virgin to be married. Purity rings where you would wear a ring on your finger to say, no, I'm saving myself for marriage. These purity balls, like I never did that, but it's like a dance that you would father and daughter, uh, that you would go to and that you would just say, I'm saving myself for marriage. These were the tools that were used. And here's what I want to say tonight. I don't believe everything about purity culture was bad. I want to say that again in case you missed that. It's really easy to turn your nose up at all of these things that those silly church people did to promote not having sex before marriage. It is easy to turn your nose up at that, but it's easy to do it because you don't have the perspective that they had. See, they were responding to a very real issue. In the 1960s in this country, we just all of a sudden changed our sexual ethic and decided that sex was no big deal, have as much sex with anyone you want to, don't worry about it. And that generation of people raised up a generation of kids in the 1990s where STD rates were soaring, where the teen pregnancy was at the height it has ever been, even to this day, when it comes to the history of the United States of America. And at that time, get this stat, that in the early 1990s, AIDS had become the number one cause of death for men between the ages of 25 and 44. So, so w- w- this is what purity culture comes out of. It comes out of a reaction to a culture that had lost its mind on sex, and they were starting to see not just you're having sex before marriage, but sex before marriage is causing pain for young people. So church people responded. And church people responded by coming up with all kinds of programs and ideas and ways of trying to discourage young people from having sex. It came not from a wicked, awful, mean, manipulative place. It came from a good place. But here's something we've been learning over the last couple months here in our Thursday night services. You've heard me use this phrase before. I want to use this phrase again. It's this. It's that when you make a good thing, the ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. You've heard me say this a few times. When you make a good thing, the ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. Let me say it more plainly tonight. When you make sexual purity the ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. Let me give you an example. So when my wife was in high school, she was up at a camp, Christian camp. She was in her cabin time and her cabin leader, they got into the discussion of sex before marriage and her cabin leader tries to make an illustration and she pulls out a tissue and she goes, ladies, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see this tissue. And then her cabin leader does this and blows snot into the tissue and then says, ladies, if you have sex before marriage, This is what you are, and this is what you'll offer your husband someday, and who, what man would want this? That's what she was told. Now, um, I'm trying to be clear here tonight. I'm not telling you this story because I'm endorsing it. I think this is a horrific story. I think if anything else, this is manipulative, it's mean, it's rude, it's shaming. By the way, shaming never works. If you're ever discipling someone, shaming them and guilting them and making them feel terrible has great short-term effect and terrible long-term results, okay? But, but that's not even my biggest issue with it. My biggest issue here is two things. Number one, ladies, if you have had sex before you are married, this is not you. This is not how the Bible describes you. This is not how Jesus describes you. Listen, if you have had sex before you are married, men and women, there is nothing in the Bible that suggests that you are used up, useless, not worthy of anything. And there is nothing in my experience with Christian men who have any ounce of faith that says they wouldn't want you because they see you as damaged goods. And some of you have come in here believing that tonight, and that is a lie from the pit of hell that I want to expel from your heart. 
But then here's the second issue. You use tissue, you blow into it, asking this, young lady, this group of young ladies, like, who would want this? Who would want this? Like, here's the problem. Some of you know this isn't true of you, but you still feel this way. Like you've had sexual experience and you've gone to places you didn't want to go. You've crossed lines with your boyfriend or with your girlfriend. You've looked at pornography. You feel sick and gross. You're like, I know I'm not this bride, but I feel this way sometimes. And that question, what guy would want this? Who would want this? Is actually an answerable question. You want to know the answer to who wants this? Jesus wants this. That's the whole story of the gospel. The whole story of the gospel is that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The whole gospel is that before you wanted anything to do with Jesus, he went and died on the cross for you. Who wants the used up person who's crossed lines and sinned sexually and feels shame about their past? Your God does, and he proved it to you on the cross. Don't you dare believe for a moment that your sexual past, your sexual history makes you this makes you used up and garbage and not valuable for anything. You are filled with the love of God. God looks at you and declares that you are holy, that you are chosen, that you are dearly loved. I just feel like I need to speak to a young lady in here who just feels like damaged goods. You are not damaged goods to your God. You are his precious treasure, worthy of dying for. And here's what happens in purity culture. Here's what happened for a generation of young people. Sexual purity became the ultimate thing. Like, is it true that sex before marriage is damaging? Yes. Is it true that there's some things that can go wrong in your life when you bond yourself in that way to someone else? Yes. But is it true that your sexual immorality is the most important thing about you? Absolutely not. When sexual purity becomes the ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. See, Jesus' words about you are the ultimate thing. You are chosen. You are holy. You are forgiven. You are dearly loved. God loves you and treasures you. See, ultimately... When something good, like sexual morality, like purity, like abstinence, becomes the ultimate thing, it can wreck and ruin your faith. This is where purity culture went wildly wrong. It said the most important thing about you is whether you have sex before marriage or not. And so then some of you have had sex before marriage. You go, well, I lost my virginity, so I might as well keep going, right? Because there's no going back. This is the problem. It turns in to the ultimate thing. But then let me describe the reverse problem. Because there's a lot of people, a lot of young people, Maybe even some of you, maybe some of your friends who saw purity culture and went, you know what? That's a disaster because it was. And so your response to purity culture wasn't coming back to a reasoned, thoughtful view of scripture. You flipped from purity culture to what I'm going to call tonight promiscuity culture. Promiscuity culture that just says, have sex with whoever you want to, whenever you want. Sex is no big deal. Stop complaining. Stop being a fundamentalist. Stop being some Bible thumper about sex and just have sex with whoever, whenever. Don't judge me. I won't judge you. Let's just go have sex with whoever we want. And here's the deal. Uh, Aside from being contrary to the scriptures, can we just be honest tonight? That hasn't worked. Like, even if you're not a Bible-believing Christian listening to my voice right now, you cannot look me in the face and say that our culture, which is completely promiscuity culture, is working when it comes to sex, like super healthy and well-balanced and everything's going well. If you want to come up to me and suggest that the United States of America culture right now when it comes to sex is super healthy and well-balanced, I would love to discuss that with you in the lobby after. Because we all know it's not working. So, So here's the problem. We always do this as a culture. We always do this as people. We bounce from one thing to the other. And here's what I want to say to you tonight. The answer to extremism isn't more extremism, right? The answer to foolishness isn't more foolishness. 
Listen, purity culture in all of its worst iterations was foolishness. But the answer is not to go to more foolishness. I want to say this tonight. The answer to purity culture is not promiscuity culture. The answer to all of the manipulative tactics of the 90s and the early 2000s when you were growing up is not to swing into another kind of extremism and another kind of foolishness. So tonight I want to show you what the answer is. I want to show you what the Bible says. This certainly won't be all the Bible has to say on sex. We don't possibly have the time to do that tonight. But I think Galatians 5 is going to help someone. It's going to bless someone. It's going to challenge someone tonight. So Galatians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 13. If you're following along at home in your Bibles or here in the room, it says this. It says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. I want you to understand that the biblical sexual ethic, the Bible's view on sex is that you are called to be a free person. You are called to liberty. And when the Bible uses freedom and liberty, it doesn't mean it in the sense of this enlightenment value that we have in the United States of America. It's talking about a different kind of freedom. It is talking about a freedom from slavery. It is talking about a freedom from being enslaved and in bondage to a power that exists in this world. And I want you to know the kind of freedom in sexuality that the Bible talks about is different than the kind of freedom that we've seen in both purity culture and in promiscuity culture. Let me put it to you this way. Purity culture is going to say something about freedom. Here's what purity culture says. Purity culture is going to say that freedom comes from staying as far away from sexuality as possible because sex is dangerous. And so in other words, purity culture was really all about just don't think about sex, don't talk about sex, don't listen to anything about sex. If anyone says sex, just kind of cover up your mouth and giggle because it's kind of strange. Like, like church culture has for so long said, so sex is dangerous and sex is bad, but then you get married and it's the best. It, it's this weird mixed messaging. See, listen, purity culture is going to say sex is dangerous. So freedom comes from not thinking about it, not talking about it, not even confessing that you are in fact a sexual being, that everyone listening to my voice is a sexual being. See, purity culture has a distorted view of freedom, but it's not that promiscuity culture does any better. Listen, promiscuity culture says this, that freedom comes from having as much sex as you want because sex is meaningless. So go ahead and have sex with your friends. Go ahead and have sex with your people from college. Go ahead and have sex with anyone. Sex is meaningless. It's no different than any other biological function. Just go have sex. Have as much as you want. It means nothing. And let me tell you something. The people who have bought into the idea that sexual freedom means having a sex with anyone with no consequences have very quickly learned that sex always has consequences. Like again, there's this myth out there that you can just have sex with whoever you want and it never impacts you and there's never anything that lingers there. And I want you to know that this myth hurts people the worst and it hurts females the most. Like ladies, this hurts you. Like, men, you need to understand that if you've kind of gone down this road where sex is this meaningless thing where you just go from woman to woman to woman, you are wounding people around the way. And so again, these two extremes that we're looking at both fail to understand the Bible's definition of freedom. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible is going to say that freedom comes from sexual pleasure in the context of marriage because sex is a gift. So what does freedom come from? Sexual pleasure. It's what we started the whole night off with. Sex is the best. It's amazing. It's a gift from God. It is a spectacular gift from God. He could have had us reproduce in any way, right? He could have had any other thing happen, but he invented sex. How cool is that? It comes from the sexual pleasure in the context of marriage. Now, why do I say in the context of marriage? Here's why. Because it's a gift. 
It's a gift from God. And as the gift giver, he gets to tell you how sex operates, how it works. I said a number of weeks ago that sex is like a fire. When it's in the right context, it brings warmth and it brings light. And when it's in the wrong context, it burns down everything in its path. And here's what the Bible's view of sexual freedom is. That you get married with someone, and then in the context of that covenant, you enjoy the great pleasure of sex. And that is something to long for, to look forward to, not to repress, not to just express meaninglessly, but to find one person that you can share that great pleasure with. It goes on this way in the back half of 13. It says, rather, you are to serve one another in love, humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. I want you to see here, these words here, that we are called to serve one another. And then it goes on later to say that you are called to love your neighbor as yourself. I want us to understand that the biblical view of sex, like the authors of the Bible have a view of sex that understands that sex is directly connected to how we serve one another and how we love our neighbor, how we love other people. And if I can talk to you about it in this way tonight, I want to contrast this with sort of some of the views of the world and some of the things we experience by saying this. I don't want you to confuse love with lust. I don't want you to confuse those two things. I don't want you to get your circuits crossed, and I don't want you to get those confused, because when we do, we hurt people. Let me put it to you this way. Lust is using one another, and love is serving one another. Like lust says, you're an object for me to use to get sexual pleasure. You are an object for me to use to gain attention or acceptance or affection. But love says, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to bless you. This is about you. See, lust does that. Lust makes the other person an object. Love recognizes the value of the human. Lust always boils down this other individual to just an object. Like, listen, if you want to know why pornography is so horrifying, it's because it turns the individual, the human being created in God's image on the screen, to an object for your pleasure rather than a human with infinite value. If you want to know why sex, in the context of anything but marriage, ultimately dehumanizes, it's because it's using this other person, this one-night stand you're having, and it feels so pleasurable, you're using that person as an object. You're using them rather than loving them as the human that God sees them of infinite value and worse. And then finally, listen, lust is about control and love is about sacrificing and letting go. I want you to understand that every time you're taken by lust, your desire is to control the sexual experience in front of you. But the ultimate expression of love isn't controlling the experience or controlling a person or controlling what's in front of you. Ultimate experience of love is sacrifice and of letting go. And I just want to kind of boldly say this tonight, um, that every time I see a young relationship that begins and gets sexual quick, it's almost always because love and lust have been mixed mixed up. Like when things get sexual too quick, you think it's because of love, but it's just this infatuation. It's this lust for one another. And again, this isn't to shame you or to condescend to you or anything like that. I just want to point out how quickly you can start to use the other person. And that doesn't just mean for physical pleasure. Like I've seen people use the other person because when you have sex with him, you feel accepted and you don't feel accepted anywhere else. When you have sex with her, you feel strong and you feel mighty and you feel awesome and everywhere else you don't feel that way. You use the other person for your pleasure, for your ego, for your confidence, rather than loving the other person through how the scriptures call us to love. 
Again, the Bible is going to make a connection between our love for one another, between sexual purity and serving one another, loving the other person as our neighbor, rather than using them as an object. It goes on this way in verse 16. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So we just read a passage here, and um, I I blew past um, a verse that I actually think for every single person in this room is going to be the most important verse in your fight for sexual purity in your entire life. I'm making that claim very intentionally. I believe Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 might be a game changer for some of you when it comes to your fight for sexual purity, whether it's on your own if you're single or in a relationship if you're not yet married. Let's put this on the screen here. Galatians 5, 16 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's linger on Galatians 5.16 for a moment. Here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine this is you. This is all of us. And here's what I want you to imagine. That because you are a human being, stained by sin, living in a fallen world, because you are a human being who is in need of rescue and redemption, sin, which the Bible here is calling the desires of the flesh, has infected your entire system. Don't miss me here. I'm not saying if you've had sex before marriage, this is you. I'm saying if you're a human, this is you. If you've had sex before marriage, this is you. If you were a virgin and had never had sex, this is you. Me as a married man, this is me. When the Bible talks about the desires of the flesh, it talks about this sin, this wickedness, this evil that lives inside of all of us. And in the most honest moments of your life, you know that. You know there's wickedness and evil desires that live inside of you. And the question we're all trying to ask is, how do I get rid of that? How do I get rid of the desire to look at pornography? How do I stop having sex with my boyfriend? How do me and my girlfriend stop crossing the lines we promised we would never cross again? And tonight my contention is that to deal with this, Galatians 5, 16 is your key. I want you to notice this. It doesn't say what you need to do is just get rid of the desires of the flesh. What do I mean by this? Most people, when they see sexual sin in their life, they realize that it's a problem. And their first thought is, maybe I could just remove the sexual sin. And this is kind of how you look. You're trying to remove the food dye from this, and you're like, it's not working. I guess maybe my faith is broken. And then you go, okay, I need to remove this from my life. And so you start to put boundaries. You you put a blocker on on your devices so you can't look at pornographic websites. And you ask for accountability in your relationship. And you have discussions. These are good things. You have accountability partners who help you. And you start to set up walls which are healthy and good. And ultimately, you think the aim is this. I have this sexual sin in my life. And what I need to do is I need to get that sexual sin out of my life. And here's what happens. You can be successful at that for a while. You can avoid pornography for a while if you just try hard enough. If you set up blockers where you can't even get to porn on your iPhone or on your computer. You and your girlfriend, you and your boyfriend can make it a couple weeks or a couple months or a while without having sex. But here's the problem. You notice it ends up empty? And here's where I think some of you are. Some of you have avoided sex before marriage. Some of you have avoided the sexual sin that has weighted you down in the past, but you feel empty. 
You feel completely empty, completely dry. It's hollowed you out inside and you can't figure out why because you're not having sex and you're not looking at porn and yet you still feel empty. And here's the problem with people who feel empty. Eventually what's going to happen is the misery of you feeling empty is going to be solved by you going back to the same well of sexual immorality, of sexual sin, of the things you know that you are not called to do. It leads you back to the same well. So here's the problem. This verse doesn't just say, you should defeat the desires of your flesh. You shouldn't do the bad things. What does the verse say? It says, so I say, walk by the spirit and then you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Like in other words, the goal is not that you would just empty yourself of sexual sin. The goal is not that you would just stop looking at porn or stop having sex with your boyfriend or stop crossing lines with your girlfriend. That's not the goal. The goal is something else. And the method is something else. It says walk by the Spirit. In other places in the scripture, it says be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Be constantly filled with the Spirit of God. So what do we want to do? We want to be a people who day by day, hour by hour, are being filled with the Spirit of God. How do we get filled with the Spirit of God? We pray, we read the scriptures, we show up at church, we become a people that are in community with other people who can serve us and love us and challenge us. We confess our sin, we get on our knees and we pray, we do the spiritual disciplines, we fast like we talked about back in January, we become a people who say, I am going to be filled with the spirit of God, I am going to be filled with God's goodness and God's love and God's faithfulness. This is what we're called to be. And what begins to happen? Slowly but surely, as we are filled with God's spirit, the sexual sin, these desires of the flesh start to flood out of us. Now you look at this and you go, Brian, it's still a little bit red. And can I just be honest with you? I think a little bit of that temptation is just going to be with you until you go to be with Jesus. This idea that you'll ever be completely free of sexual sin is nonsense. I don't think you're ever going to be completely free of the temptation to sin sexually, even when you get married, and every married person you've ever met, including myself, would tell you that. You start to be filled with the Spirit of God. And then what happens? I'm filling myself with the Spirit of God. I'm worshiping. I'm praying. I'm reading the Word. I'm fasting. I'm seeking God in all things. I'm seeking wisdom. And then what's going to happen? At some point, you and your boyfriend, you and your girlfriend, you're going to mess up again, right? Like it's going to happen. Like there's going to be a night you go too far. There's going to be a night you feel lonely and you step into sexual sin again and it's going to come back into your life. But do you know what some of you are going to do? You're going to go back to the same strategy of trying to like pull it out yourself. But that's not what the scriptures call you to do. It says walk in the spirit. In other words, when you fall back into sexual sin after getting out of it, the the solution is still the same thing. Get on your knees, pray, repent, confess, seek the Lord, fast, Decide to do everything you can, not just to try to get rid of sexual sin, not just to try to live in abstinence, but to live in a holiness that says, I want more of God in my life. What is the solution to sexual sin? It's not beating yourself up. It's not feeling guilty. It's not running away from God. It is opening yourself to the God of the universe and saying, Holy Spirit, I want more of you. That's the solution. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let this be the image of your life. Let this be the thing you constantly, constantly go back to. That you would be the type of individual who says, you know what? Sexual sin, sexual temptation is present in my life. 
And the way I'm going to wage war is to be filled with the Spirit of God, filled with the Spirit of God that allows me to overcome the desires of the flesh. Here's how it goes on. It goes on this way. It's going to tell us this in verse 19. It says, the acts of the flesh, like that stuff that's within us, that sin and evil that's loose in us, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality and impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord and jealousy, fits of rage and selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, and drunkenness and orgy and the like. I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what's it saying right here at the end? Like if your lifestyle, if your whole life and whole world is wrapped around sin, if sin is your master, if sin is your life, if you go, forget you, God, and your ways, I'm going to go after my own ways and live in sin, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. This doesn't say if you ever stumble in sexual sin, you don't go to heaven. It's saying if your whole life is mastered by it and you have no interest in turning your life and your, your decisions and your, your, your authority over to Jesus, there's no way you can actually call him Lord, King, and Savior of your life. So it's going to talk about this. Sexual immorality. It's going to talk about impurity. Sometimes people say things like, because purity culture was bad, we shouldn't use the word purity anymore. I love that idea. Only problem, it's in the Bible, so we got to use it, okay? We're going to use it. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. And here's what you need to know. In every single vice list, which is, the vice lists are just any time in the New Testament you see just a list of sin after sin after sin. Every single vice list, every single one gives a prominent place to sexual immorality. Can you just think about that for a second? Every single time sin is listed in the New Testament, sexual immorality makes it. Sometimes things make it or don't make it. Sexual sin is always mentioned. Why? Really simple. Sexual sin is a universal human temptation. Universal. Every human who's ever lived, including, and this may freak you out, your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents. That includes your pastors and your worship leaders and your small group leaders and your best friends and your heroes in the faith. It is a universal human temptation. It's like, listen to me, young men, if you struggle with pornography, can you stop thinking you're some freakish person? It makes you human. If you struggle with sex with your boyfriend, can you stop thinking that you're somehow this unbelievably awful, out-of-the-ordinary type of sinner? It makes you human. If you are someone who has crossed boundaries and you feel guilty about shame of stuff in your past, can you stop thinking that makes you abnormal? It makes you human. Listen, saying it makes you human doesn't mean it makes it right. But sexual immorality is a universal human temptation. And the fact that you struggle with it surprises exactly no one. There is no one in this room. I'm just outing all of you right now. You're all sexual sinners, and so am I, and you struggle with it, and we all struggle with it, and it's a temptation. And if we can just say that out loud, we'll get past the shame of thinking you're the only one in this room who struggles. I think some of you think you're the only one who struggles. Ladies, maybe there's some of you who think, like, I know dudes struggle with this, but no ladies do. And every lady in this room is going, yeah, that's me too. It's just a different kind of struggle for some of you. And so again, sexual immorality is this universal human struggle. But now let me try to address a question that I think some of us are going to have, particularly in the context of relationships. Okay, Brian, I understand sexual immorality, sexual sin is wrong, but here's the big question we like to ask. Okay, what qualifies as sexual immorality? Which is really the question we like to ask it this way, like how far is too far? Right, if I'm in a relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, we're not married yet, how far is too far? Because I know sex before marriage, that's like a thing, but you know, you're like, Brian, I don't know if you know this, but there's things between like hello and sex that can be physical. And I want to try to answer that question tonight in two different ways. Two different ways. The first um, is with the annoying answer that you're going to hate. And i got to say it. How far is too far? 
It's the wrong question, right? It's the wrong question. You're, you're asking, how close can I get to sin without sinning? It's like my child asking, like, how close can I put my hand to the hot stove without burning it? How close can I put my face to the blade of a knife without cutting myself? That's the question you're asking. It's the wrong question when you're trying to say, how much can I get away with, God? But I know that's an annoying answer. And I know that theologically that's a strong answer, but it's not actually very practical for some of you. What's the actual practical answer? And I'm going to try to answer that. And I'm going to do that by actually stepping away from my Bible right now. Okay? I rarely do this. The last thing I want to do is lay down a new law that you think you have to obey. The Bible does not actually like list out all of the sexual things that can happen between shaking hands and sex, okay? It doesn't say yes and no. It is going to give us principles. It is going to give us understanding. But I do not want to lay this on you as a law. I'm trying to step away for a second to share this with you as wisdom of someone who is married, someone who's walked through this, and someone who has walked through this with unbelievable, uncountable amount of people, okay? I want to share some wisdom. How far is too far? Here's the rubric I try to use. Do nothing in private that you would not do in public. That's the rubric I want you to use. Again, that's not a biblical law. I can't give you a verse on that. I'm just trying to tell you that if you commit, and we're not going to do anything behind closed doors that we're not doing in public, you're not going to find yourself stumbling into sexual immorality. So kissing, fine. Like 47-minute makeout session while you're watching a movie, not so good, Right? Like holding hands, fine. Your hands coming underneath each other's clothes, probably leading you into sexual sin. You giving each other a hug, fine. But like you kind of being all over each other behind closed doors, in a bed, none of the roommates are home, it's probably leading you into sin. Again, I can't give you a verse for this, but I can tell you that if you walk by this, you are going to find yourself in a healthy place of relationship. Because here's what the greatest thing about this is. When you live this way, you have nothing to hide. You're not worried about your friends or your family or your people in your life who you care about and love finding something else. And isn't it great to live a life where you're not hiding anything from anyone? Don't you want to live the kind of life where if someone said, hey, I found out something about you, you don't go, oh, oh no, right? That's the kind of life you want to lead. But here's something I can tell you that is in the scriptures. The scriptures are going to give us all kinds of metaphors and ideas and images when it comes to how we relate to one another. And I do want to point this out from the scriptures. Um, I want to point out that the Bible doesn't have a category for boyfriend-girlfriend. And we know this because that wasn't a term or a word that was around. The Bible is only going to give two images, two categories. Let me put it this way. The Bible only has two categories for male-female relationships. Brother-sister and husband-wife. That's it. Gentlemen who are not married, every woman in this room is your sister. Women women who are not married, every man in this room is your brother. And even the Bible's going to talk about your parents and your children someday in Christ are spiritually your brothers and sisters. It gives brother and sister and husband and wife. It does not give the leeway of like, yeah, they're your brother and sister, but with benefits. Like it does not give that. That's not a leeway you get. Actually, the scriptures are going to put it this way. That men, you are to treat younger women, it says, as sisters with absolute purity. I think that's a good way to think about it. I know that's not a fun way. I know that's not a popular way. I know there's some of you who will think that is entirely too narrow-minded. But I've just watched far too many Christians say they're not going to have sex and then blow that up because they decided to inch as close to the line as they possibly could and eventually it just took over. And so I just want to plead with some of you to know that you're not as strong as you think you are. 
If you think you can be alone in bed and spending the night and being together, we're just not going to have sex, we're not going to cross that line, what you've done is you've just set yourself up for failure. And ultimately, you've set yourself up for heartache. Uh, I want us to remember that we're not going to try to do anything in private that we wouldn't do in public. Here's how the scripture is going to end tonight, verse 22. I think this is so important. It says this, and you'll recognize this, especially if you grew up in church. It said, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, which is another word for patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And I'm trying to end a sermon that began with purity culture and sexual purity and sexual immorality with what's called the fruit of the Spirit. Again, if you grew up in church, you have all sorts of songs about the fruit of the Spirit. It's adorable and cute. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This ninefold fruit of the Spirit, if the Holy Spirit of God is living in you, this is what should be coming out of you. This is what your life should be producing. And I want to end our conversation on sexual purity tonight, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. I want to end talking and thinking about the fruit of the Spirit for this important reason. That I think our conversation on sexual purity as a church, as a culture, has gone off the rails because of this. That sexual purity is often defined by what you avoid. So you're sexually pure because you and your boyfriend haven't had sex yet. You're sexually pure because you haven't looked at porn in a month. You're sexually pure because you and your boyfriend drew a line and it's totally on the other side of sexual sin and you feel good about this. But here's the problem. In every other use of the word, purity is defined by what it is. Like, do you notice that? With sexual purity, it's always, here's the things we didn't do. We didn't have sex. We didn't cross a line. We didn't get naked. We didn't do this thing. We didn't go there. But in every other time we use the word purity, in any other conversation, we talk about it not by what it isn't, but by what it is. Uh, Like, let me put it to you a few ways. I'll show you a picture here um, of some gold. When they measure gold, when they talk about gold, like 24 karat gold is a pure gold. Like, that's what they mean by it. They're not defining gold by how little food dye it has in it or how few rocks, or anything else. It's by how pure the gold is. It's defined not by what it isn't, but by what it is. It's the same thing with diamonds. Like a diamond, and maybe some of you are like, put one on it, like that type of thing. A diamond. It's defined, its purity is defined by how much of diamond it is, not by how little of any other substance or object it is. Water is the same way. Some of you have like water purifying things in your fridge, and you like double, triple purify it. It's your whole gig in life. What are you trying to do? You're trying to get to the purest kind of water. You're defining it by how pure the water is. We do the same with food, right? We look at food and we say like, has this been infected by something? Is it growing mold? Is it growing anything? We define it not by what it isn't, but by what it is. So here's the question I want to end with tonight. The question I want to end with is this, what is purity? Because we know what purity isn't. We know that purity isn't sex before marriage. We know it isn't sexual immorality, all of the things that are listed. But what is it? And my answer to you is what we just read in verse 22. Here's what purity is. Purity is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what you're called to. You are not called to a life where you simply avoid having sex with someone before you're married. That is not what purity is ultimately about. Purity is about becoming these things. That the Holy Spirit of God gets poured into your life and the evidence that the Holy Spirit is doing his work is that these things start to appear not only in your own life, but in your relationship with your boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, husband, or wife. This is what purity is. 
See, I want someone to hear me really clearly on this tonight. The point of purity is not abstinence. I want to say that again. The point of purity is not abstinence from sex. It's not that I don't believe you should abstain from sex before marriage. I hope I've made it clear that I believe sex is for one man, one woman in marriage forever. But the point of purity is not simply your abstinence. Listen, I know Christians who have never had sex, but they're not pure. I know Christians who have never had sex. They've never crossed that line, but the fruit of the spirit isn't booming in their life. And then I want you to hear me so clearly on this. I know Christians who have had sex, who have gone down all kinds of roads they wish they had never gone down, that they've turned and repented from, and they are walking in a greater kind of purity. They are walking in a greater kind of fruit of the Spirit than Christians I know who have never had sex. This isn't permission to go have sex. This isn't saying it doesn't matter. I'm just saying the point of purity is not abstinence. Hear me on this. The point of purity is holiness. That's the point. That you'd become more like Jesus. The point isn't that you would just kind of pour out all of the sexual sin from your life and feel empty. It's that you would feel so filled with the Spirit by your prayer, by your worship, by your reading of the Word, by your discipline, by your fasting, by you seeking after God each and every morning and each and every night, and that you would be filled with that holiness, that you would be filled with that Spirit. See, there is a purity culture that says sex is bad and you should pretend it's not there and stay as far away from it as possible, but that'll never lead to this. And hear me, there is a promiscuity culture that has, has sex. Don't worry about it. It's meaningless. It's just like any other bodily function. Just have at it. You're nothing but an animal. And it will never lead to this. What leads to this is being filled with the Spirit of God. Because when you do this, and only when you do this, will you not gratify the desires of the flesh. Church, I want to say clearly tonight, purity is something to chase after. Purity is not a dirty, bad word that we should cast out. Purity is a good thing. But the point of purity is not abstinence. The point of purity is holiness. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to turn our attention to the Lord in, in, in worship in just a moment uh, through song, as we always do after the sermon. Um, and I want to invite you right now um, to, to consider how this message is hitting you. I think for some of you, you come into this room and you have all kinds of sexual shame in your life. Uh, and by the way, our band, band you can come on out and, and start getting all set up. Um, some of you have um, a backstory. Some of you have shame in your life. Some of you have things in your life that you wish you hadn't done. For some of you, you've told people about it. And some of you, no one even in this room knows about your past and your history. And yet you've just kind of been wearing that. And, and then others of you actually have this other kind of weird shame where you're not sure if you're ever going to have sex or be married or anything like that. And you're just kind of feeling weird about that. And some of you have had a sexual encounter that wasn't consensual and you didn't ask for it. And so sex is this weird, twisted thing for you that you don't even like thinking or talking about because it rips up all of those experiences. Can we just confess this in a room full? of people who have had a twisted, weird view of sex for one reason or another. And yet here's what we're all invited to do. From the person who has led the promiscuous lifestyle who's in this room to the person who has never had sex, never even gotten close to that line, maybe even never had a boyfriend or girlfriend. Wherever you're at on that spectrum or anywhere in between, you're all invited to one thing tonight, and that's to come to Jesus. Amen? You're invited to come to Christ. Like we're going to sing this song, Oh, Come to the Altar. And here's what the words say. Oh, come to the altar. Like, come to Jesus. Come to this loving God. It says, because his arms are open wide. And can I remind someone in this room that whatever your past is, wherever you've been, whatever your struggle is, there is a God whose arms are open wide. And he says, come to me, my child. I know your past. I know your shame. I know your sin. And I want you anyway. Let's pray and let's worship in light of that truth. Father in heaven, 
Thank you for tonight. Thanks for the opportunity to look at your word. Thanks for the opportunity to think deeply and carefully about sex. Father, for the young lady in this room who feels like sex is so confusing and twisted up because of her experiences in the past, for the young man who feels so much shame about his lust and about his sexual sin, God, I pray they'd come to Jesus tonight. I pray that your holy hand would touch them, that your Holy Spirit would fill them, that they would feel the depth of what it means to be filled with your spirit so they would not gratify the desires of the flesh. God, I'm not just asking that we would sing songs right now. I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would meet us in this space because we need you, God. We can't do this without you, God. So God, come fill us in a powerful and a fresh way that we would know whatever's happened or whatever happens next, we're your child because you say so. God, thanks for wanting me. Thanks for desiring me. Despite my sin, despite my failure, despite my past. God, thanks that the same is true for every woman and every man in this room. God, we sing to you now with the confidence that you are the God who saves. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said real loud, amen.